Hello and welcome once again to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, your stochastically scheduled download of high-quality, low-fidelity godlessness. This week on the show, we'll be discussing a religious movement that we have rarely, if ever, touched upon before, Catholicism. Protestant children, especially fundamentalists, are often raised to believe that the Roman Church is the foul whore of Babylon from the Book of Revelation, but we shall soon learn that the truth is actually far worse. Our guest today is Miranda Celeste Hale, rhetorician, author, teacher, speaker, and one of the many inspiring women of TAM. You can learn more about her at www.MirandaCelesteHale.net. And now, on to the show! Alright. You're one, you're one of the inspiring, inspiring women. women of TAM. That was yes. so cheesy. It was hilarious. Do we have a piece on you up at Skeptic Inc. yet on the inspiring women I wasn't of Tam? On the main. I wasn't on the main stage this year, so I was not an amazing woman of Tam or what, inspiring woman of Tam. Damien, you should do an inspiring woman of Tam for this uh, podcast. No, yeah, yeah, I think you're definitely one of the inspiring women of Tam. <laughs> I was the year before I was up on the stage, but not, I wasn't an inspiring woman of Tam. No, you're still inspiring. Yep. Yeah, yep. Everybody's beautiful in their own way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, Miranda... Tell us a little bit about yourself. What uh, what brings you to skepticism and or atheism? Well, um, I started with uh, atheism when I discovered uh, online atheism a few years ago. And uh, before that, I hadn't been aware of... Well, when I first became an atheist, I didn't know what the word atheist meant because I was in a Catholic... I was attending a Catholic high school and uh, we weren't even allowed to speak about evolution, let alone anything like atheism. So I just knew I had stopped believing in God and stopped being Catholic, which had huge repercussions. Um, eventually, um, I read about evolution and things like that. It wasn't until like the Four Horsemen books came out, which would have been, gosh, 2006, I think roughly, you know, so like the God Delusion books like that, that were really great. And then, you know, so I went online and got involved in, in uh, atheism, uh, started writing online related to those topics. And then gradually, uh, within atheism, sort of moved towards the Catholicism uh, topic, which is what I know, uh, which is sort of the niche topic that I know most about within it. Um, skepticism came a little later um, because I had then had more exposure to it, really liked, um, you know, the skeptic community, the idea of um, scientific skepticism and applying the methodology and the practice of scientific skepticism to claims and um, ended up... Uh, at TAM and different skeptic conferences and getting to do write and do things for that. So, so wow, the four horsemen, they were, uh, they were that influential for you. Um, well, I've been an atheist for a while. I think with them, um, it had helped me to have an intellectual grounding for my atheism. Um, you know, I had long passed, got past the stage of just saying like, I hate God or (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. Wanting to smash Bibles. Why doesn't mom and dad like each other anymore? I hate you, God. <laughs> I was not no longer like ragey atheist. <laughs> but let's not be autobiographical <laughs> too much here. <laughs> Traumas there. No, I wasn't ragey anymore, you know, as my teenage self was when I became an atheist. But um, I guess I'd never read anything about atheism or, you know, the logic, logical underpinnings. And I don't know if what you guys experienced with that, but it's kind of... You know, when you come to that for the first time, it's kind of interesting to think that there are people writing about this. And yeah. and before then, you know, kids today, like, and I sound really old now, but, you know, the college, they have secular student societies, all that, you know, whereas that wasn't really around. That's what I've always heard is that it's not that it's not that they were entirely influential in making people atheists, but they were maybe if you're on the if you weren't thinking about it too much. Yeah. 
or if you already were atheist but you didn't like you said didn't have an intellectual grounding or or didn't Absolutely. feel bold enough to talk about it in front of people that this was very influential in that way what didn't occur yeah. well you were already you'd already lost your faith in the catholic yeah. god the catholic idea of god uh, before you encountered these popularizations of atheism so how did how did that happen to you okay so, um, yeah, a brief period of devout uh, Catholicism and devout belief and um, bashing terms I'd heard, such as evolution, without even knowing what it was, anything that threatened the faith. And then, um, you know, I went to, I was at a very good Jesuit high school, good in the sense that it was a great education, got to learn things that a lot of public schools didn't teach, bad in the sense we had to spend so much time on religious classes. Um, but uh, I couldn't stop the, the cognitive dissonance was driving me nuts, you know, because you would go to a calculus class or a Latin class. And, you know, it's like, use your brain, use your brain, think, analyze. Well, then go into scripture class, turn brain off, absorb, <laughs> do not question. <laughs> and that, I don't know, I think it just got to the point where intellectually atheism was the only choice for me. But I didn't really know what was happening, but I knew that I was done with it. Um, and I never had any doubts about being an atheist. Catholicism, I left behind quite easily too but it's also you don't ever get rid of catholicism i don't think um in one way or another it's not as easy because of what the way it's ingrained in you as a child it's kind of like being jewish yes um there's different it seems like people of different faith traditions or you know have different experiences where they are you know it always can affect you to in some way one degree or another for your whole life um depending on how you were raised. So, um, yeah, I was 16 when all that went down, and um, that left two years at home that were, um, and at high school, that were kind of a living hell because I was, uh, it was uh, not a welcome decision with parents or Catholic school. And uh, mm. so that was tough, but you got to go through the, you know, go through a little challenge there. Wait, so you told, you told the people at school, at Catholic school, like, oh, hey, yeah, I don't believe in this anymore? <laughs> I had a, we'd have these all school assemblies where we'd have mass in the, in a big gym and I refused to stand up anymore, but I was very polite about it. I didn't make any sounds, you know, I was this, you know, non-threatening small person. And so, but I got dragged out by this one teacher um, in uh. front of the whole school and he started like swearing at me and stuff. And I was, you know, I started swearing back because <laughs> I was mad, you know, cause, but then, you know, private schools could do what they want really. So when it comes to this, so I had detention, which we called justice under God at that school. It was so, so stupid. So, I mean, I would never call it that, you know? And, That's uh, it. You're getting justice under God. Yeah. And he, and so, like, I had to stack chairs every time I would do this. Um, and I assume that still happens if any kids at that school, you know, start to express their doubt. I was the only one, as far as I know, you know, but I'm sure there's been others since. But it was, but I was, you know, I was stubborn and and <laughs> feisty and didn't want to, you know, thought, well, I'm just sitting here. Why do you drag me out? And that was a mess. But again, that's what the danger of private religious schools. They can do that and a lot worse in a lot of ways. You didn't try to form like a secular student alliance chapter. <laughs> I didn't even know what the word atheist meant, so <laughs> no. Um, no, it, I didn't even know any of that in 
college, but I think that's because, I don't know, maybe I could be wrong, but I think a lot of those college groups didn't start till like, after the Four Horsemen era, really. Yeah. And I I'm was pretty sure you're right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure when SSA started, but it's pretty recent. Back then. Well, there's, a, there's an independent, non-affiliated free thought group at my college, and that was, like, in 95, oh, yeah. 94. Oh, wow. Um. Okay. And and then it, it faded away, and then the next one that came up didn't realize that there had been one before it because I saw the newspaper. <laughs> I saw the newspaper coverage of it. This is the first ever atheist group at this institution. <laughs> like, no, it wasn't. No, I was there for the first one. This wasn't it. Well, that's pretty cool. You know, so yeah. Actually, we, we might have been the second one. Who knows? Yeah, you There's might no have no institutional memory there. It was the same groups. thing with OU atheists. They uh, they they shut down because no one came, and then yeah. this SSA came in. And they started their own. But no one really knows about the past organization yeah. that was with yeah. them. you got to have some there. sort of continuity plan, because as soon as the students graduate, that we're driving everything. Yeah, it's, it's all over. But it's a bit like the South Park episode with all the, in the future, with the atheist groups fighting for, oh, you no, know, I, the otters. I think that's more of an analogy for actually <laughs> I, I know. fighting. You're right, you're right. Just thinking of all the groups. Which we can no. talk to. Oh, there's so much to talk to about. Oh, there's so much. But I, I want to hear more about uh, about Catholicism. We've never sure. really talked about Catholicism on this show. And, okay. and usually when we talk about Christianity, it's sort of understood that we're talking about evangelicalism and fundamentalism. Sure. So that's what we have to deal with here in Oklahoma a yeah. lot. Yeah, absolutely. Now, like, I, we live in a, in a town called Edmond. Literally hundreds of churches here, and as far as I know, there's only one Catholic church. Yeah, one oh. that I know about. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah there, it's there huge. Might, there might be another one on the very edge of town that might technically be in Oklahoma City. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Everywhere I've been in the well, I wouldn't say the north in general, but I, Catholic churches just abound. I come from Chicago and the part of Chicago where they're they're really like that's where what church meant. Was Catholic yeah, mass. Yeah. yeah. Down here, that's it's, it's different. Christianity is different here. So if you'd like to the talk South. to what makes Catholicism different from from <laughs> Protestantism, like I know yeah. that's very remedial, but I think our listeners would benefit. Honestly. Yeah. Well, are you guys surrounded by like like hardcore speaking in tongues type churches or? <laughs> no, 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 no. More we have just like those. mostly we have them, yeah. but we're not surrounded by. Them. But yeah, yeah, because I think Nathan could speak in tongues. So. I don't, places I don't like know. Oklahoma I, do get those reputations of like having the Sarah Palin's wandering the street. <laughs> they probably do. They probably do. Probably not as glamorous, but. But yeah. um, well, Catholicism um is people I think are drawn to it because of the rituals, um you know, and it's it's um there's a certain comfort level to it where it because it's. Protestantism is more was you know traditionally fire and brimstone, the shouty preachers and the you know they it's um Catholicism in theory is not like that and you know is supposed to be devoted ideally to helping others and not the Protestants aren't but you know supposed to be more modest and not um, have ostentatious churches and things like that most of those rules are broken but um. Catholics are just as hellfire, brimstone, as Protestants, as evangelicals, different things like that. Um, they're just a little more subtle about it. They tend to hide it a little bit. It's kind of like family secret. I kind of picture it like that. Like if you grow up and your family has like a deep, dark secret or something, or like dad's an alcoholic or something. <laughs> and they, you or know, you keep it a pedophile, around. that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, or a priest, a pedophile, a better analogy. Catholic Church is great at hiding things. So, um, 
you know, I grew up knowing about hell from since I knew I was alive and since I knew I was Catholic. And, you know, so that was part of the daily, um, especially when they get kids like me, you know, like a lot of kids who had the home, school, church life of Catholicism where you never escape it. So there's a literal hell being talked about all the time. It's just, I don't think we're as exciting, you know, Catholic churches aren't as exciting with their descriptions of hell as some of the, <laughs> maybe the the churches that you're talking about in your area, they just get a little more, and I can see the appeal of that too. I went to, a, when I was a kid, um, an African-American family that lived next to my cousin took us to a their Baptist church. And that was like, to me, that was like a party compared to Catholicism. They made like hell sound fun. Whereas (laughs) Catholicism, you know, is very somber. Catholic mass is very somber. And there's, you know, um, the pre, you know, there's unintentional humor when the priest warbles, you know, because he's an old man and usually, and, but there's nothing fun in Catholicism. Um, But it's, um, you know, a lot of it is ritual. And then we have the, um, the childhood indoctrination, which is horrible in, all groups of, you know, religious backgrounds can be horrible. Um, I think uh, Catholic childhood religious indoctrination has become sort of a cliche and a joke with the Catholic guilt, you know, lifetime Catholic guilt. And it is funny in a lot of ways. And I think that's how a lot of us, you know, kind of cope with dealing with it. But it's also quite, it's also quite true and sad in a lot of ways. Um, I think it's so common that no one really, bothers to talk about it or deal with it a lot of times because everybody a lot of people have it so what what is what does the guilt consist of and in in, mm-hmm. in in my upbringing mostly you're made to feel guilty for looking at girls or yeah. or looking at girls and touching yourself at the same sure. time That's so a lot like of it the, is sexual yeah right? mostly it's sexual guilt is that i mean is it different over there well what what, what what's your background i forgot like, what's your religious background? Uh, well, I was raised Catholic Just until Christian. I was six, and then I was raised yeah. by a secular humanist who watched a lot of Carl Sagan until I was 12. <laughs> and then she was born again, and I was raised oh. evangelical until I was 18. So. Oh, man, okay. Um, I, I think the, the sexual guilt is, is a big aspect of it, too. Um, controlling humans, controlling, you know, their desires, and, you know, just making you feel guilty for natural things that shouldn't you know, shouldn't feel guilty for. A lot of that is because you're taught early on that even questioning the doctrine or even questioning what you're told is a sin that can lead to going to hell. So if you don't question it, uh, if you can never question anything, that in itself is constant paranoia of a certain sort. So, and then there becomes a constant avoidance of sin because you really don't want to go to hell because it sounds like a pretty bad place. So, you know, you're going to, you're intended really to spend your whole life avoiding sin which i think maybe for for the boys as kids they do focus more on the don't you know have lust in your heart or whatever jimmy carter said um even (laughs) if you don't act on it um you know for for girls it's more like be proper and don't let the boys have the lust in their heart don't let them do that um you know stay pure virginity you know is obviously touted we had a sex ed class that was very you know, it was like maybe you memorize a few of the names of the thing, you know, related organs related to sexual reproduction. But it was all like within the con. This is only ever to be discussed when you are married and you are fertile, and you know, which confuses, I think, 12 year olds more than 
anything is like they like they don't know what you know ovulation days mean or things like that so that is that is a big difference right there i i don't think the hell discussion is really that all that different Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're, I mean, there's some evangelical churches where they won't talk about hell at all. They'll just talk about mm-hmm. how great heaven is, and they'll let you fill in the gaps. They right. Won't, they won't talk about hell at the all. Opposite. The separation. Yeah. yeah, they'll just be like, oh, how great oh, it is yeah. to be with God. It's all carrot and no stick. Right. Uh, and there's other places where they really go the reverse of that. But the what you said about the fertility, that I think is is a distinct oh, yeah. difference. Yeah, between, <laughs> absolutely. Between <laughs> Protestantism <laughs> and Catholicism, um, you know, we were taught that it for the most part, it, that it's okay for Protestant women to control their fertility. Yeah. That they, you know, that they want to not get pregnant until they get their graduate degree or whatever. That's like, that's cool with Protestantism. You don't talk about it. You don't talk about how you're having right. sex before marriage. No, no, no. I'm, not talk, I'm talking about in the context of marriage. Oh, in the context yeah, of marriage. You get, okay, your, yeah. you get your first depo provera shots right before you get married. <laughs> right before you get married. But, that's yeah. exactly what we did, actually. Yeah. You control right. your hormones right before the ceremony. <laughs> yeah. uh, you get your, get your, your, yeah. Yes, I think that's true. Um, contraception is, um, is considered to be a bad thing. I mean, nowadays, everyone kind of knows that Catholic women use the pill and things like that, obviously. But no one really you know, it's still part of doctrine and it's still a no, no. Um, and when you are like in Catholic school and I don't know, 11, 12, 13, you do learn about natural family planning, which is very confusing, especially probably for the boys, because at least the girls know what the parts refer to that are being discussed, (laughs) um, a little bit. (laughs) So, you know, these are children who are, you know, you know you're giggling anyway at any mention of sex we understandably at that age everything is funny even if you you know and then you get trouble for that so obviously it can give you like a yeah complex related to when you are sexually active later in life um but yeah the you know um the idea is that not only do you you can should never prevent possible pregnancy it's like the monty pythons get every sperm is sacred you know making fun of the catholics um but also that you really shouldn't have sexual intercourse in a time period in which conception isn't possible that was iffy you know there was some things like that where some people would say oh well maybe that's okay but generally you're supposed to not unless a woman can be with you know you knock her up you know you're not supposed to be having sex with her so after menopause you just give it up no more sex i don't know i never read about that they never mentioned menopause i mean that stuff was like way too like secular i guess Menopause is a very secular activity. (laughs) (laughs) The church doesn't recognize menopause. (laughs) True, probably. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of guilt related, you know, to when you grow up and you, very, I would say probably, especially anymore, most people who grow up Catholic don't fall within those boundaries as they grow up and you know depends on what kind of Catholicism you're raised in or how your parents raised you or how scared you are of things um you know those continue to affect you and it won't necessarily stop you from making choices but the weirdest thing is you know it can it's like a part of the brain that isn't well not a physical part of the brain but you know metaphorically let's say a part of the brain that can't be reached by logic and rationality it's emotional and um and it sucks. It's like the Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. <laughs> that song does suck. Don't, don't put that it. song in my head. I know that I song really does Eagles, suck. Eagles, man. <laughs> I know. I do too. I do too. But that song. I mean, and I know other people have an, other analogies for it too. But I'm like, that song is Catholicism. You know, like you're, it's always with you in one way. 
I, I was, was I was thinking yeah. I was raised to believe that song is about the Church of Satan. <laughs> I'm I not I'm not that. even kidding. I was raised to I've believe that. that was like part of I'm I'm not making that up. Oh, in the California in the seventies that would make more sense. Yeah, you know, that was uh, it's all about yeah. Anton LaVey founding the Church of Satan. Oh, okay. <laughs> we haven't had I that spirit that. here since nineteen sixty nine. It's not it's the that. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit left. Mm. California. Uh, or at least uh, Southern California. He left in That's lot, that's more interesting than natural family planning. Natural family planning. No, no. I, we tried natural family planning. It's how we got our first yeah. child, actually. Seems like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was great. It worked for a while and until it didn't. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the whole point of it. I always figured that, like, you know, it's like, yeah, you guys can do this, but, you know, it ain't going to work forever. And... One time Laura came to me and she's like, hey, you know how I've been keeping really careful track of my cycle? I'm like, yeah. Well, I ovulated a week late. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I'm like, okay, and that's how that's how on the record the the kid who reads the credits at the end of the show that's how he came to exist. <laughs> Is that your kid that was on Facebook recently and he was really funny? The one, yes, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. The, the one who asked yeah. about uh, what what's a flashlight? Yeah, yeah, what's a flashlight? Yeah, funny. <laughs> yeah, See, he doesn't have any Catholic guilt. I envy that kid. <laughs> he just if he has any guilt about anything. He's got the Stuart guilt. It's a it's a family trait. Oh. oh yeah, it's passed on from your mother. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. Yeah. Genetic genetic guilt. That's yeah. A whole other... yeah. Well, that's how hey, that's how original sin is passed in, according to church doctrine is through sperm basically. I mean, they don't say sperm, but <laughs> no. the patrilineal lineage, you know, is how you get your original sin, hmm. and so you got to be baptized so you won't go to hell. But you know, so we're all born sinners. Well, that's another big difference, right yeah. there. A lot of Protestants believe that baptism is just a, it's just a symbolic act of dedication in your life to Christ. It doesn't have any spiritual effect in, in and of itself. Oh, okay. Whereas Catholics believe the ritual is effective to do something. Oh yeah, it um, the baby. When you think about it, the baby's you know is very is pure sin before they get baptized. <laughs> And that's and they're so still weird. against abortion for some reason. You'd think that I know. if it's pure evil, yeah. just get rid of it. <laughs> well, the problem is they conflate the two. Like they conflate con- contraception and abortion. This is what they're doing in the with the healthcare. They're trying to stymie the um, Affordable Care Act's requirement for nonprofits to uh, it, within their insurance plans to pay for contraceptive coverage, just like every other insurance plan. Um, because they'll use terms like um, I have a hard time pronouncing it, but it's like abortive. Facient, you know what I mean, like yeah. something like that. Yeah. They'll say like they won't say contraception; they'll say abortifacient. Well, and there is like one pill that technically is, but it's like you don't. It's not the pill you take every day. <laughs> the morning after pill is not neither n- isn't an abortifacient either. It's just a large amount of contraceptive, a large dose. So well, from their point of view, if it if it yeah. if it if it's a fertilized zygote yes. and it does not implant in the uterine lining as planned by God. That's true. That, that's an abortive, an abortion from their perspective. Oh yeah, and so, they brought out the nuns too, which is totally savvy. I have to give them credit; it's evil, but it's savvy. So they could get Sotomayor to sign on New Year's Eve while she was dropping the ball in Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve or whatever. <laughs> she was. They got her to sign the stay, so the nuns wouldn't have to write a paper saying that it's okay to give contraception to our employees that they pay for. You know, they don't even have to pay for it. Um, so, so she lit- she literally dropped the ball. Uh, signed uh, it before she dropped she, the ball. And then she figuratively dropped the ball on birth control. Yeah, exactly. That was a last-minute New Year's Eve thing, and it was very surprising and very sleazy. And 
uh, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops was involved in this, as they always are. But they knew enough to send a group called the, they are nuns called the Little Sisters of the Poor. Yeah. So, they're a big time sports analogy. They're, they're a huge sports analogy. We'll tell you about that there, here in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just like, it's like, you know, so they have this, these like, are you going to make the poor little sisters of the poor nuns <laughs> give a, give abortions to everybody, you know, so they amped up this horrible rhetoric, you know, so who can oh, say no Christmas to the poor the nuns, the, poor. the little sisters of the poor, and I'm, you know, and I know they do charity work, but they're saying that it, they would be financially ruined within a day if they had to give the pills and their religious liberties would be just smashed. So Obama, this is going to be heard in March, I think, or maybe it's earlier than that, because Obama is defending the contraceptive mandate, which is good. Thanks, I didn't, Obama. I mean, oh, I yeah. mean, I have my problems with Obamacare, but if nonprofits, I mean, if profits have to do it, if every other nonprofit has to do it, then so does a religious group. <laughs> you know, that's a problematic if we slippery slope so what what you guys have your they have sports analogies for little poor nuns or little nuns of the poor <laughs> no, that, no particularly the little sisters of the poor yeah really? that, that's a stand-in for any terrible team like a <laughs> like if ou were to play a some really crappy team like new mexico like sure. new mexico state <laughs> they'd say OU's whipping up on the sister little sisters of the poor yeah. That's brilliant. Or so if that your was, offensive line really sucks that night, you say they couldn't stop the little sisters of the poor. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. I wonder if the like the guys, the Machiavellian creeps of the USCCB knew that, you know, be like, well, this will work even better in the American perception. <laughs> we'll send in the little nuns, the little sisters of the poor. Yeah, so we've been softening them up with sports analogies for years. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, like, um, yeah. And, of course, they had to find the ones, you know, because there are lots of nun groups with lots of different names, and they found the one that just sounds the most feeble, and the poor little sisters, um, whereas, really, the USCCB is in control of this stuff um, and runs it behind the stage. They're the ones that, I don't know if you remember when, gosh, I think it's 2010 now when the Affordable Care Act first passed, there was that huge attempt to block it by Stupac, I believe the Stupac Amendment, because he, a bunch of the Catholics in Congress got together and, and like, like uh, Occupy Wall Streeted Nancy Pelosi's office. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was organized by the USCCB. And um, the head of it at the time was um, the guy who's a cardinal now, um, Timothy Dolan, who's bad news. Um, huh. And they're the ones who wrote the report I was mentioning, too. Um, and so I... They flew in there like in the middle of the night before the healthcare law was to be signed. I mean, is it Harry Potter? Is it the Dementors or the Death Eaters that fly in? You know, like do you know what I mean? Like where it's, they fly in like evil. It's actually both in the movies, but okay. it's, it's only the Dementors in the books. Okay, it's well, pretty geeky for me to distinguish those two. <laughs> no, it's good because I forgot. But basically, they're the Dementors, and they flew into Nancy Pelosi's office like <laughs> the night before, like in the middle of the night, wearing capes. And, you know, to control this, um, so basically this group, all their time is spent avoiding persecution, prosecution for, um, legal prosecution for pedophile priests and for cover-ups, and then bothering the government to protect the free exercise of their religious liberties. So it's just this back and, I don't know, it's crazy. So they have a lot of influence, let's say. Anyway, those guys are the ones that are sort of puppeteering the little sisters of the poor. It's just that the little sisters of the poor make a better news story. 
whenever I think of Catholics in the public sphere, I think of Donahue. That, that's his name, right? Bill Donahue. Oh, no, Bill Donahue. Yeah, I was thinking for a second, Bill like Donahue. the 80s talk show host. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Bill yeah, Donahue, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, do, do you know what, like, what is his role in the, in the Catholic sphere? Um, he's actually really well-respected um, among a certain portion of Catholics. Wow. I don't know if that's just... I know people do... They think he's just like a guy in his basement with a computer. And I can see where they get that impression because he comes across that way. And his, their Twitter feed, you could, like, if you wanted to make a troll, like a Hulk version of Bill Donahue, you can't because his Twitter feed's in caps already. <laughs> so, like, you can't Hulk him. So, he's like uh, my dad. You can't Hulk. Yeah, I mean, he writes in caps. If you go to their website... The search box, at least it used to, turns your letters into caps in the Google <laughs> box. Um, but he has quite a bit of influence um, because he's, well, his offices are in the same building as the Archdiocese of New York, number one, which is, he's best friends with Timothy Dolan. But the, th- the reason he does is that he goes and does press releases and they get into the news and he complains about every little thing. He's, yeah. he's Bill Maher isn't. Off, had, isn't jobless yet and that's still obsessing him because he hates Bill Maher and he'll carry these things on for years I mean I followed this one thing he had where he tra- was trying to get bully the Empire State Building into lighting up for Mother Teresa for something I can't remember um, well and uh, you know being a private company they don't have to do any of that but he said it was you know it's Catholic bullying every year he writes these huge reports or not he probably but his minions um, about the persecution of Catholics. If you go to their homepage, it's all stories of persecution, and there's a new one every day. He likes to try to debate atheists. Um, Hitchens was brilliant against him, and just Bill eventually, this was probably like 2007, uh, this was on MSNBC, and eventually Bill said, um, he called him Chris, which, and then so Hitchens just goes, it's Christopher, which is just perfect comeback. And then he, and then he goes, Chris, you never insult an Englishman. Never insults an Irishman. Let's take this outside, bro. <laughs> to Hitchens. <laughs> Hitchens is like, that. yeah, you have to see Hitchens. this. Don't take it outside. Like, no, no. He's like, what? <laughs> he's like, you're insane. Anyway, he wanted to beat him up because he just couldn't handle that Hitchens was dismantling every one of his claims about Mother Teresa. The build on anything. Hitchens lunch for people. On it. I mean, this happens. This- oh, he could. I mean, he wouldn't waste his time with Bill Donahue. Um, this, um, anyway, so Bill Donahue, he's a joke, and I think most of us see him as such, being just a big, loud blowhard, but he's got a lot of influence, and he's willing to be nasty, and he has press releases out every day, and people give him press. Um, the New York Times is his sworn enemy, and Is it always that same, like, you're persecuting Catholics narrative? Yeah, every, you find something on, like, like television every night it seems like or i'm not even sure but i mean he writes books and it's about that it's always about the persecution he's a you know atheists are evil but gays are more evil according to him right now he's trying to have this reporter from some group fired because she was mean to catholics he tries to get people fired constantly because he's offended we should Um, we should have him listen to this show we should tell him oh i tried to get him to adopt me once because um he started an adopt an atheist campaign, which was, you know, pure ripe for the trolling. Um, and um, this was like I don't know, a year and a half ago. So I made a video asking him to adopt me personally because he was encouraging all Catholics to adopt an atheist. We'll put that and in the links bar of the show. How yeah, it's probably. Down? The most, I know, and I mean, I I played it, I played it, you know, like a little 
cheeky, but I, you know, I was serious in it too. And it's, I think it got more, it has like 10,000, 9,000 views on YouTube. It's surprising, but um, just because of the need, it's, you know, because it's funny, but he really did encourage Catholics to go adopt an atheist and like make them Catholic, um, which is interesting. Um, so that was one of his things. It didn't work out too well. He gets schooled regularly on TV, but will never admit it. Um, and yeah, there's always the war on Christmas. He's one of the guys that started that, um, oh, that paranoia. Yeah. yeah. I like, I like um, the war on Christmas. I, I enjoy it. <laughs> Every year I look forward to it. The survivors of the war on Christmas will not be forgotten. No. <laughs> I, I will honor them uh, with every New Year's toast. <laughs> um, and yeah, he's got his annual reports. Um, the video on the front page, it's kind of funny because, you know, he tries to avoid discussing anything bad, you know, but he, the video on the front page of the Catholic League website is called Bill Donahue Responds to Piss Christ, which was a work of art. <laughs> Isn't that a little out of date now? Like, it's been a it long time It is very out of date, so I don't Christ. know why it's still there. That is some stale started... urine. <laughs> that is some stale um, urine. That's been around forever. And he was, I mean, for whatever it means about him, he was very worried about Piss Christ. I we, should, we should inform the audience what, if you don't know, Piss Christ was a it was a piece of art. It was essentially just a crucifix in a box of urine. Eighty seven. Wow. Like that's about all it was, right? Yeah. yeah. There's though it's on Wikipedia. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead. it's a plastic. Go ahead, Google it. Make it your background at work. Submer submerged in a glass of artist urine. See, I mean, like anyone can make a piss Christ at home. It's really <laughs> easy. I mean, it's easier for boys than girls, obviously. But Oh wow, it was on tour though until two thousand twelve, it sounds like. It's on tour? It's Wait. Um, From 87 until 2000. We could have invited it to come to the city. We did. Damn it. 15 years. I should have written the OCMOA. And, uh, can you get Piss Christ oh, here? And there were prints of Piss Christ. People put prints up in their town. Um, That's great. So just to, I guess, to offend. I don't... Um, anyway, yeah. So I don't know what Bill says exactly about Piss Christ, but he's really mad and likes to say Piss Christ a lot. And... um. Yeah, so anyway, and also to tie it back, Bill Donahue is deeply, deeply affiliated with the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So basically the Dementors or the Death Theaters or whatever. Um, so he's not he's not an official part of the church, but he's got his office in um, there. You know, he's in their arch, the Archdiocese's office. which He's is, sort of their, like, public troll for hire. <laughs> exactly. Like, he goes out there and just shouts every day. I mean, he'll organize protests. The thing is, though, like, it works. And you guys, I'm sure, have seen this in various contexts, too. Religious people can be herded very easily to do activism or to, to get an online campaign or to do whatever. And it isn't a criticism of atheism at all. It's just that because their beliefs are based on ideology and they're not going to change and their beliefs are sacred, you know. So if you say, let's, you know, these people want to promote contraception, let's stop them. Well, of course, they're going to herd their masses because they all fall in lockstep, you know, whereas atheism, you know, it's harder. It'd be, it'd be hard to get all the atheists, like, you know, just like yelling at Michael Shermer or something. No, yeah, you know, that's the problem. It's, it's tricky. Atheism. To... <laughs> well, in athe atheism, it's been, it's people get all this personal identity politics stuff in it, and that's not what it should be. I mean, but it, it's even harder, I think, to get, I mean, even just discussing, like, uh, working maybe for secularism is maybe the only thing, you know, you can get. But the problem is, you know, when this stuff does come up, um, like, it's not just the Catholics, but they are well-organized, and they, you know, it's like they put out the, the bill alert or the batch alert or whatever. 
the bat signal and it goes out, you know, someone is going to make the little sisters of the poor give out abortions, do abor- 20 abortions <laughs> gonna, a day. We're going to train them. They're going to all like personally. <laughs> they have to do 20 Abortion a day. slaves. Yes. Like the, like the babe, like the baby cougars in the w- little Just, woodland. Cri- well, those, those are volunteers. We're going to force the, <laughs> we're gonna force the poor. So, At least yeah, the cougars wanted to learn how to do abortion. <laughs> I mean, they'll put out this amped up thing. I looked at the, um, there's a very slightly, well, it's just somewhat deceptive. I mean, it's not deceptive, but it's slightly deceptively named. Um, it's not the ACLU, it's the ACLJ, who is uh, the lawyers yeah. for, the, uh, yeah, yeah, you're probably familiar with. They don't just, they don't just do, yeah, they don't just do Catholic stuff, but they're the ones who are the lawyers right now for, for the Little Sisters and for the USCCB, and they... What's the guy's name? You're right, I've based it. Jay Sucolo. Yes, Jay Sucolo. He's been talking about the Little Sisters on his site, like, all week. Anyway, I, I have this... The petition open here, whereas he's going... I mean, the way he shapes his rhetoric... Um, see, I'm tying it back to skepticism and rhetoric, but the, this, is the worst, this is, like, the worst violation of religious liberty in our nation's history forcing people to violate their faith, it's unconstitutional, um, and blah, 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 we're going to the Supreme Court, we're prepared to do everything, please add your name to end the abortion pill mandate for the nuns. (laughs) We're going to make all the nuns eat abortion pills every day. Every day they'll have to wake up and eat a a government-subsidized abortion pill. I know every not every Catholic woman. And then when they have their illicit lesbian sex, I'm not sure (laughs) if it'll do anything. But whatever. It, it'll neuter, you know. And anyway, they're so worried about this, you know. And they'll go and they'll go to the court for this, but they spend so much time avoiding proper prosecutions for the priests who are raping children, you know. And it's like, ah, your priorities are so wrong, you know. And I don't know if that's a function of. I, I think that it is at least it's the Catholic culture and the way it, it the mindset you grow up with, with the sense of entitlement and the things like that. I mean. And part of it is just institutional corruption that never gets checked because it's always within your institution. You never get checked from the outside. And so that could be anything. But, you know, I think part of it is very specifically Catholic. There's, it's not a, it's not a um, fluke that the most of the vast majority of the child clergy rapists um, come from the Catholic Church, you know, and that this hasn't been as large of a problem, thank goodness, um, in other religions. Well, in other religions, whenever, like, whenever a Baptist preacher turns out to be a, a, a kitty fondler or worse, right? Um, it only reflects badly on that one guy in that one church, right? Because yeah. they they have no overarching hierarchy. They don't. That's like, true. They don't report up to somebody else who reports up to somebody else who ultimately goes back to Rome. They just right. it's like each church stands alone. And so what they do is they all repent and they pray and they get a new pastor and that's the end of it. There's no cover up. If they want to if they want to leave the guy hang, hanging out to dry and just let the sheriff take care of it, they can do that and it doesn't you know, it doesn't affect them. That's yeah. And that makes sense. Um I mean and that's yeah, the so the institutional the cover-ups are they're definitely part of the structure of the Catholic Church because anything that makes the church look bad. I mean, so there's plenty of of priests and deacons and um, uh, monsignors, which is going away. That's the, uh, the word monsignors going away, and that's the big Catholic story today. Like, who cares? Oh, that's um, sad. That makes me I sad. know. Yeah. Uh, uh, the bishops, it, you know, uh, the cardinals, the pope, it goes all the way up. And um, ultimately, everything regarding uh, clergy sex abuse of minors is handled by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, 
at the Vatican, which actually goes back to the Inquisitions. It is the it's the same body, isn't it? It's a, yes, it's a continuous yeah. body. <laughs> yep, and they um, it's been around for a long time. Um, they have since they have designated as delect, delecta graviora. My Latin is getting um, sloppy, but which means grave sins, basically. And um, you know, like desecrating a communion wafer's been there forever and ever. It wasn't until I think 2000 that child rape was made one. Um, so they don't have their best priorities in order. Um, and Benedict ran the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith up for 25 years, I think, up till he was became Pope right after JP2 died. And um, so that's sorted history. So yeah, all this stuff goes right up to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Inquisition Board. Well, if they could have gone old school, man, if they could have, if they could have brought out the old torture devices, which I I'm sure they keep those somewhere. They got and, them somewhere. And be like, okay, this is how we're gonna deal with kitty rapists. <laughs> we're gonna shove this this pear-shaped exactly. thing up your ass, and then you know, just do these horrible things to you, like Sam Harris describes in his book, mm -hmm. uh, yes. which which I, I still try to forget what I read there. It's horrible. Uh, if they were to do that, then I think they'd have a lot less of a problem with with child rape. Because I mean. Yeah. Assuming that torture works, if I mean, if they, if they kept it as a public event, you know, that's probably a public relations uh, benefit. Honestly, <laughs> I'm just saying well, the Inquisition it could have it could have gone, you know, they could the other way. Really gone old school. I'm sure they do still have that stuff. They they have so many bodies under the Vatican. I mean, not like secret bodies, but there's a lot <laughs> of stuff down there. It'd be interesting to know what's down there. I mean, you know, not, yeah. not even like in a Dan Brown way, but that's another thing they could have done with the kitty rape. It's just bury them <laughs> under the Vatican. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, but instead they moved them to another parish where they had more children to. Rape. Yeah, they just took um, them to some rural like area. The worst possibility know, of all the things they could have done. Damn. Pass them off into someone else. Can't they and just fire them? I don't what, did they, well, what, they what were have. they thinking? Were they just thinking they'd never get caught? Were they yeah, Were they thinking they, that Jesus like healed them spiritually and they'd be okay? Well, a priest. Yeah, I'm sure some of the priests were probably claiming as much. Like they. Well, sometimes they would send them away for like two weeks to find their Catholic's faith and get soul again, and then. But we know that a pedophile isn't fixed that way. Yeah. So we know, you know that, but we're like into science and stuff. Right. And that was the convenient thing to do. Um, in a, that USCCB report about you know the the causes and context of the sexual abuse of minors by the Catholic priests in the United States from 1950 to 2010, a lot of the ways they deflected blame there were to say seminaries didn't. Mm -hmm prepare these men for um modern the modern world you know like the hippies came so they saw the hippies and of course they then had to have um lots of they didn't know what to do with the sexually liberated culture so they became confused and started uh violating children i mean these arguments are just just bonkers so um when this uh first came out that was that was one of the ways the the media, mass media reported on this study was calling it the Woodstock study, the blame the hippie study. Mm. Which it really, that was the pull tag. But it, because, because the, yeah, they said the seminaries had not prepared these men of that time period for the swing in sixties, basically. <laughs> I love and that, I mean, well, and there's so much weird 
I mean, that claim, it's not one of the most egregious in this report, but it is one of the strangest um, because they say that they were, let's see, they were just incapable of coping, basically, Oh, because they didn't receive enough human formation training, whatever that even means. Why in the world does someone have to be told not to rape a child? You know, they're basically saying they weren't explicitly told not what to do, but most men don't get told specifically not to rape the children around you and most men don't do it you know so and they yeah so the seminaries often fail to provide human formation curriculum consisting of training in the self-understanding and the development of emotional and psychological competence for a life of celibate chastity and uh, providing a clear delineation of behavioral expectations appropriate to a life of celibacy and it goes on and on. And so the, oh, and they, according to them, they didn't have, you know, show their data, but they claim the priests with abusive behavior were statistically less likely to have participated in human formation training than those who did not have allegations of abuse. And that's the Woodstock theory is what the media ran with instead of the really important thing, which no one pointed out, um, which I was shocked by was the redefinition of pedophilia for their own sake. Um, and this is the problem is that the, the media narrative gets controlled by people like the USCCB who actually funded this report um, along with other Catholic organizations and re uh, retained authorization rights, which basically meant they would pay the researchers at the John Jay College of Criminal Research in New York City to run this whole report, do this study for years. But if they didn't like the end results, they could say burn it. <laughs> so I mean, that's just, you know, unethical in every way. So it was entirely funded. Uh, by Catholics in organizations, and it was uh, they retained authorization rights. So you talked about the uh, <clears throat> the most egregious part of the report was that they redefined uh, pedophilia. I think you talked yeah. about that before we started recording. Yeah. But can you explain what they say? That sure. Yeah, it's a way. Well, see, the data they used, and that's a big problem too, was self-reported census studies, which basically meant the dioceses would fill out reports, you know. So a lot of it was very, you know, wasn't all that reliable in the first place. Um, but they, one of the things they did, the researchers chose to do, the John Jay researchers, because probably because they were being paid by the USCCB. Um, and so the meth it's a huge methodological flaw and insane. Um, they arbitrarily redefined pedophilia to mean the sexual abuse of victims that were 10 years old or younger at the t or younger at the time, despite the fact that the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, um, is it mental health or mental illness? Mental disorders. DSM. Um, yeah, DSM, which is basically <laughs> what, what every doctor uses, what every psychiatrist uses, what, what, would, what would be, you know, the consideration for prosecution or for, you know, rehabilitation if this was out in the secular world. Um, that sets the cutoff age at 13 or under for pedophiles. So if you're in the non-Catholic real world, you're a pedophile if you are involved with, involved with, makes it sound too benign, you know, if you're abusing a child under 13. Um, so, def but defining it at 10 years or older, younger instead of 13, let the researchers claim things like, and this is a quote, um, less than 5% of the priests with allegations of abuse exhibited behavior consistent with a diagnosis of pedophilia, um, a psychiatric disorder that's characterized by recurrent fantasies, urges, and behaviors about prepubescent children. Thus, it is inaccurate to refer to abusers as pedophile priests. 
And remember, this is in the context of what they've changed the age. And it, this is another quote. It is worth noting that while the media has consistently referred to priest abusers as pedophile priests, pedophilia is defined as the sexual attraction to prepubescent children. Yet the data on priests show that 22% of victims were aged 10 and under, while the majority of the victims were pubescent or postpubescent. So they're defining pubescent as 11 and up, you know, which is icky in the first place, but number two, just totally violates the DSM. So well, the point being, if they had stuck to the DSM guidelines, um, their, not, their claim of 22% would be blown out of the, you know, air, and it would have instead jumped to 73%. And so that's a huge difference, because um, as they say in the report, most of the sexual abuse victims of priests, 51% were between the ages of 11 and 14, 27% were 15 to 17, 16% were 8 to 10, Nearly 6% were under age 7. I mean, it's just awful stuff. But anyway. And this is this their is own they... data, too. Like... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Al Jazeera English um, did an op-ed to the USCCB, like, I don't know, a year and a half ago or something. And I talked to the reporter about this because she found it. And I was I was really glad to do it because just to get, you know, more awareness of the USCCB's awfulness out there. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just things like that. Because I, I just was shocked that nobody in the mainstream media they just all ran with the hippie angle. And and again, just tying it back, these are the same guys who are behind the little sisters of the poor. Um, so they're always messing with somebody, doing creepy stuff, and they have tons of money. And it was, you know, a, a, a corrupt institution with money, not a good thing. Now, there's got to be something more than, like, just the United States um, going yeah. on here. Uh, I've read significant portions of the Ryan Report out of yeah. Ireland. Well, that's awful. Yeah. It's it's just really disturbing. And we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. It's awful. just absolutely uh, a terrible uh, systemic abuse of children in lots of mm. different ways in Ireland over a long period of time. Uh, mm -hmm. Ireland had given over control of, of huge institutions to mm -hmm. the church. Uh, they didn't have a separation of church and state like we think of it here at all. Yeah. Um, and it resulted in, in uh, massive cases of abuse. And I, it seems to me like there has to be something... There's something institutional yeah. going on here, and I, I don't know if it's just if it's just the hierarchy, if it's the power involved, if it's the yeah. celibacy, if it's the fact that they're advertising for job openings with the description of, hey, you get to never have sex again. And the kind <laughs> yeah. of people who answer that job opening are people who maybe feel vaguely guilty about what their sexual urges are in the first place. Exactly. You know, because, I mean, if I was a pedophile, yeah. if I was attracted to prepubescent children then maybe the idea of lifelong celibacy would appeal to me a lot more than it does sure. now. Yeah, it's plausible. I, mean, I, don't, I yeah, don't know. There's yeah, got to be something. Some... Yeah, that's a good point because it is. we see the same pattern in Ireland as we see in America and Australia and Scotland. Right. And, you know, and it's all these all places around Woodstock. the world. It's all Woodstock. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, Blame it on the hippies. The 60s did it. It's... The 60s did it. And then actually when this came out, this is a tangential note, Bill Donahue's beef with – he had a beef with this was that they didn't blame the gays enough. That was his beef. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't have been happy unless it said blame the gays, and that was the whole report. But if he would, yeah, he he put out a caps lock thing about it needed more like, blame having the gays. sex with a 13-year-old boy, that's not pedophilia, that's gay sex. That's gay sex. No, that is his argument. Therefore, to, I mean, if, gays are the problem. If you ever have you seen 13-year-old boys? They're sexy, I'm telling you. Yes, I'm just, that's, just look at them. They're is. hot. You have to, I mean, if you want to be horrified sometime, like, look at the Catholic League's website and search, like, gay. Because he, no, no, I mean, his homophobia is horrifying enough, but his 
his assertions that it's not pedophilia, it's gay because 13 year old boys, when they have sex with priests, want it. I mean, it's just horrible. And he, you it. know, if you said that about girls, it'd be a whole other thing too. Anyway. Um, so yeah, it is, you're right. It's around the world. It's the same. The, the, it's the, the patterns repeat over, you know, the different time periods throughout the 20th century until a lot of this started coming to light. Eventually it took a long time, but it was covered up so well. I think because the church is organized the same way throughout the world, because they're so intimidated by the power above them because they don't want to, you know, um, because they're told they're going to go to hell, you know, so they'll sacrifice children basically for their own well or their own eternal life or whatever. Um, that sounds too noble. I mean, I don't even think it's that, but it's just selfishness. And um, you're right that uh, maybe celibacy, that's an interesting topic. And I think it is being studied more now, the effects of um, lifelong celibacy on men, not that it leads to pedophilia, but like you said, maybe it would attract a certain group. Yeah, I know that my mom is, yeah. well, my mom has told me that, you know, it's a really sad story, but like she grew up in a very small Iowa town. My mom is still very Catholic and, you know, it's still a point of contention between us yeah. um, that I'm not. And, um, but she told me a story that, you know, she didn't realize until she was older that she had known a gay person. And it was because um, a gay man or a gay boy, you know, in their town, became a priest because, you know, he was so, he, they found out later he was gay, but he felt, you know, like he had Satan in him because he had homosexual desires. So he thought, I'll just go be celibate for the rest of my life because he didn't want to end up being married to a woman. You know, <laughs> It's just a horrible thing to think about, you know. Well, this is Iowa in the 60s too, but with not a lot of options. I don't know. I've actually anybody. met two priests that were gay. Like I've known. Yeah. How many priests have you met around here? Like two. well and it's one thing if they're like you know like if you know happily somehow you know gay and happy within the church but it's like if you're going in there to like repress your hopefully repress yourself because you've been taught that you're bad i mean it's just really sad you know as a way to because you couldn't really just you know have a gay lifestyle back then if you did it was a lot harder than it's still hard today but Anyway, so I think that it does, it, the sex issue and that kind of thing, and not even sex, but also just companionship, too. You know, if you're celibate, it doesn't even have to be the sexual aspect, but if you can never have any, like, boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, husband, wife, you know. Um, it's not like the priests are probably all that tight buddies, you know, and <laughs> hang out and have good companionship. And, you know, they don't get to talk to women other than mean old nuns and, it can't be too fun. So I don't think the excuses are passable, but there is obviously some sort of cross-cultural sociological thing going on or institutional thing, and it's very scary. It calls for study. Um, we need to find some way to replicate this. No, I'm just kidding. Let's never replicate that. <laughs> well, you know, if they would get the data, if the Catholic diocese, I always say that's so weird, but if they would give up the data, that would be good instead of self-reporting. So, because when you think about it, though, too, self-reporting means that that horrible report is probably a lot worse. I mean, it's probably, if we had the real data, it'd be even worse because this is what they told the, the researchers, you know, on a, self, a volunteer census. Yeah. Because <laughs> they wouldn't open up the records. <laughs> anyway, I've got uh, a question that's, that's going to throw you for a loop a little bit. Uh, what would you say are okay. the positive aspects of Catholicism? 
<laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think the, the well, what's attractive to many people and what I do understand is the ritual of it, you know, because it's very, in, I noticed that the way that, I've, this is related, but I, on New Year's, no, Christmas Eve, I was watching the simulcast of the St. Peter's, you know, the Pope does the Christmas Eve mass. And they show it on the networks, you know, at midnight local time. And I was watching it and they had these play-by-play reporters, like like on a football game, you know, or a basketball game, like saying exactly what the Pope was doing, blah, blah, blah. And I forgot that that would be necessary for some people because I know all the Catholic stuff, you know. But oh, so right. the rituals seem fascinating to people. So they'll be like, because they're doing the incense and it doesn't make any sense, you know. And then, so he kissed the feet of the wooden baby. And so they'll be like, he just kissed the Christ child. And, you know, now he's incense blessing. And now, you know, they're going through the station, sta- the motions of the cross, you know, the kneel, the get up, the sit down. Here come the little sisters of the poor. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, the offensive line can't stop them. <laughs> that would be funny. You're right. Because it was, it was totally like football announcers. <laughs> and I couldn't believe how many times they said that the Pope kissed the Christ child. That's great. And. And it was a piece of wood, you know, and they all had to kiss the Christ child. They do a little color commentary like that. That was a, a little uh, extravagant there. I didn't think he'd have to use tongue. <laughs> <laughs> the Pope really got in there, and there's some really unfortunate pictures online. I think he's going home. Uh, that po- yeah, exactly. Um, um, Francis is a, you know, he's, he's he loves all the little children. Um, he loves everybody, according to according to some people. Does, yeah. Um but so he loved the Christ child, the doll made out of wood. Um, and so they would have, so I can see, I guess the ritualistic aspects, not like ritualistic has a negative connotation, like, like a killing of sacrificing animals or something, but no, like rituals, those things like that, they are comforting. And I think that's why, um, Catholicism is hard to leave in some ways because you get so much structure from it mm-hmm. and you get this rituals and things like that. And you get kind of, um, torn asunder from that when you leave Catholicism and um, it can be difficult to break that cycle and it ends up for a lot of people with OCD and scrupulosity which you've probably heard of which is basically the religious version of OCD oh right yeah and that's hard to not I mean t- that's not a Catholic, just Catholic thing a lot of people get that um, and basically it's and then secular version is OCD um, yeah, when, what when you, a, so yeah when a Protestant gets yeah. OCD though they they get diagnosed with OCD. They don't. They don't go to right. con- they don't go to confession and be like, okay. And then I did this. And then I did this. And they, you know, like they, yes. they, they don't turn it into a spiritual problem usually. Yeah, that and that. Well, that goes back to how the reason the priests are constantly shuffled around is they try to keep it in the church for you know spiritual problem instead of a law enforcement problem. But then, yeah, when you go to confession, um, that's where a lot of Catholic guilt comes from too, because you go in there and you kneel. And the priest has to bless you, and it's terrifying when you're little. I mean. And you have to, like, I always had to think of something to talk about because I didn't know what to tell them, you know? Like, what'd you do this week? <laughs> what was bad? <laughs> uh, I was really bad. I made up lies and confession. <laughs> I know, you, like, half the time you end up lying to the priest. So it's like, ugh, it's just so weird. And it was terif- nerve-wracking for me because I just didn't want to go in there and, you know, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. And you have to tell them something. Is it obscure? And, uh, Does he know who you are when you go in there? Um, they changed it. Like some, I think it's up to the church. Okay, that's um, why I thought. With kids, they don't seem to care. I think with adults, they care more. I would just tell them I, adults, how much I touched myself that week. I, yeah, well, because adults every I think day when they come in, again. Yeah. For us, I don't. I knew the priest was there. I mean, they have different structures. They knew who we were, but I think maybe for adults, you always see it in the movies where it's like really dark. Yeah. And you can't see, but you can still know the voices pretty well if it's your church. I mean, right. but. 
Um, is there anything so, that I you mean, miss? Um, you know, occasionally, I'm, I don't get the whole, like, I have to say I don't get the whole, like, atheist churches thing Ooh. that some people are way into yeah, now. I wanted to ask about that. And I... I mean, I'm an ex. Maybe it's because I was spent my childhood in church, but I I don't get that. I never miss church. I do miss some of the smells and the rituals and the you know just having stuff. You know, not it was just easy, but that's not necessarily good. Um, so you know, I somewhat nostalgic for that, but not really because when I think of what indoctrination does to you know, kids, and it's still going on, and I just can't, but I mean, yeah, when John Paul died, I felt a little weird, sad, like, because I always thought he was, like, I used to think he was part of our family, because my <laughs> grandparents had pictures of him on every space, That's cute. like, in their house, <laughs> I know, so I was, like, so even when I knew he wasn't, I, I was, like, oh, il papa died, because <laughs> um, <laughs> my grandma met him, this was a highlight of her life, but. Oh, well. You don't miss <laughs> the structure so much that you want to go to that atheist church in New York City. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't get that. I always wonder if those are... I can't figure out if those are people that didn't grow up going to church. Yeah, I've been or... wondering that myself. I ran it by the group here in Oklahoma City, and they're all like... Forget that. Not yeah. Sundays. That. Mm. Love them. Sleeping it on Sunday is like my number one ritual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Church, to me, is not a pleasant association. It's not like a thing where I go in and freak out or something, but I just... It, doesn't feel like you know it's just like no i don't want to replicate anything that comes from religion from leaving catholicism behind um that part was very easy for me the actual just not going to mass anymore i don't miss that um you know there's comforting aspects because it's basically part of my childhood but other than that no so i don't get the atheist churches and i'm kind of vocal about that when asked where it doesn't it seems to be this thing now and i know people that are like but i'm going to be preaching at an atheist church next week i'm like Preaching, <laughs> you know, just the vocabulary is even oh, better. Oh come on! It's really just good. like being on the main stage at Tam. Well, yeah, I just wish you know, it's just the religious vocabulary and the context and stuff. And I mean, maybe like giving a talk. Can you call it preaching if you do a Q and A afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. If you threaten hell, it maybe it counts. You know, know, hell for somebody. Well, like if I if the if the preacher opened it up to Q and A at the end at the end of his uh, sermon. That'd make it a whole lot different, wouldn't it? Instead of just cut to music. Isn't that the Jerry DeWitt defense? Aren't you, are you are you running the Jerry DeWitt defense? Right I have no idea. Oh my god! Yeah. That defense would not stop the little sisters of mercy. No one will stop the no the little sisters what, of the, the poor. poor little Sorry, little sisters, little sisters of the poor. poor. I mean, hey, you couldn't get a worse name. It's like the poor little sisters <laughs> have to give abortions. Had a great time talking with you tonight. Yeah, that was yeah. a lot. Of, that was a lot more Catholicism than I thought we could. Yeah, have. way more. Oh, I bring I bring the Catholic. Yeah. I, I hope to bring Bill Donahue someday. I hope to be able to, you know, hit, do a little bit of Hitchens on him. No one can ever go full Hitchens, but Hitchens, you know, so I won't claim that ever. But You never go full Hitchens. Never. Hmm. No, you never go full Hitchens. But I don't think Bill Donahue's ever faced a woman who knows about Catholicism. I think he'd just freak out and <laughs> run away and cry. We'll invite him for the next episode, and we'll see if we can have him on. <laughs> go watch his Piss Christ video, too. I'm sure it's delightful. Yeah. I, I think it's because it's a crucifix that one. That's why they take it as like anti-Catholic thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah but, absolutely. But he um, he had an obsession with it. Where the point where he's making videos and it's a great name, Piss Christ. Piss Christ. He's, he's Streisand affecting it to death, and whoever made it was potentially you know basically successfully trolled these guys for twenty five years. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure it's a, a great little, video. A little religious symbolism goes a long way in successful trolling, as we've seen recently from the Satan Monument. 
So does P, I'm sure. But oh. and that's I'm sure a great note to end. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, the yeah. end of tonight's show. That's, that's the wrap. Uh, that's the wrap. <laughs> okay, thank you guys. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. God bless. The Oklahoma Atheists Godcast is produced by the Oklahoma Atheists. The mission of the Oklahoma Atheists is to develop a community of individuals and families who value and promote critical thinking, free thought, reason, and a scientific worldview, and who seek to have a positive effect on the community at large through fellowship, rational discussion, community service, and education. For more information, please visit our website at www.oklahomaatheist.com. The music for today's show is from the song God is Dead by Jaron Lake and is reproduced here under a Creative Commons license. Jared's music in the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast are hosted courtesy of the Internet Archives Community Audio Collection, available at www.archive.org. To join discussion about the ideas presented in today's show, please visit our blog at blog.oklahomaatheist.com.